We're good. We are back. I know it's been a couple weeks since we have had an episode, but we are alive and well. We're really excited for 2022. We have amazing things coming. And starting today, we have a really awesome speaker named Molly Robinson. And I'm really stoked about today because I have known her for a long time, but I actually don't know her testimony. And I know little snippets of what God's done for her, but I am so excited to get details and to have a really awesome conversation with her. I've known her kids for a long time. I used to work with her son. She's a really awesome person, and we're really excited to have her on. Tell us a little bit first about your testimony and how you came to know Christ. Well, I was, I was born into a Catholic family, and I was the fifth of six children. By the time I came along, my parents' marriage was completely crumbling. I was sort of like this little accident because they were Catholic, of course, they weren't using any kind of birth control. So there was me. And I found out later in my life that my mother actually had a nervous breakdown as soon as I was born. So literally my neighbor took care of me for the first couple months of my life. How did you find out about that? It was just, I had all these pictures as a really small child with these people. And I remembered them living kind of kitty corner to where we were living. It was in Helen, Montana. And my dad had just gotten this great job in the governor's office. He was a, an accountant. And so he was becoming sort of more elevated and hoity-toity. And so our family was kind of thrust into this arena. And like I said, my parents' marriage was just falling apart. And I didn't know anything about it. I also found out later, my mom told me they had invited her sister to live with them because she had her marriage had just fallen apart. So she was there living and she was significantly older than my mom. So, you know, my mom and my dad felt sorry for her and they all drank too much. Well, my mom was pregnant, so she wasn't drinking at the time. And so she came down the stairs and she literally found my dad and my aunt making out on the couch. Nine months pregnant. If you can imagine just the total, yeah, just when my mom told me that, I was like, that explains a lot about the dynamic that I was born into. And then my little brother came four years later, and by then everything was just awful. I remember my parents screaming and fighting. We had we lived in this old house. It was 100 years old, actually, when I was born. And so they'd say, go upstairs, go to your room. So we'd be quite far away, and they would be there screaming and yelling at each other. And like I said, they were drinking too much. The whole social drinking thing was a real big deal. So by the time my little brother came along, it was like all of us siblings just kind of took care of him. He was the baby and we all just took care of him because my parents were just on the fast track to total destruction. And so I think I was about four and a half and I vividly remember my neighbor friend, she was a couple years older than me telling me, well, your parents are getting a divorce. That was just a crushing blow to me because my siblings were like my, they were the only real tight ties and I knew that if we get if we get divorced we're going to all be torn apart and that's exactly what happened you know I was like five years old and my mom decides to go to Houston Texas well if you look at a map it's like 2,500 miles away and back there wasn't a lot of air traffic you know it's like everybody got in their car and drove everywhere and so we were quite far from my dad and he was never a hands-on dad he was one of those dads that would come in and expect dinner to be ready And then he would have a couple cigarettes and a drink in his library. And we just, he just was never super hands-on. We got like a week 
in the summer and we'd go all go camping and we all loved it. When they separated, I decided to go with my mom because I was so small. It was almost like a scene from a movie. My dad came to my school and my dad, like I said, was very hands off. I rarely even spoke to him. I remember I was like in first grade and maybe even kindergarten. I can't remember exactly. And he's saying, well, who do you want to live with? And I mean, because I never had a relationship with him, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, there is no way I would stay with my dad because mm-hmm. I don't even know him, mm-hmm. literally don't know him. And I said, I want to stay with my mom. I want to be with my mom. And I'll never forget that. Just He kind of had this strange look on his face. And as a little tiny child, having to process what I was saying to him was really hurting him, even though I knew in my heart he really didn't deserve my love or my affection or my attention because he certainly never showed it to me. The only part I saw about my dad was he was a disciplinarian and he would smack you. You'd be sitting there and if you're laughing or doing something that he doesn't approve of, literally just smacking you upside the head and you weren't expecting it, like here it comes and you don't know it's coming. So that that was my relationship with my dad. And I didn't hate him, but I'll never forget that moment of, in time. It's literally like cement in, in the memories, in the archives of my brain, just spinning around me and having to tell my dad I didn't want to be with them. Like, I don't have any desire to to live with you. At that time, did they let the kids decide who they were going with? I guess they did. They wanted our input. And then they were going to say, okay, well, it makes sense for the babies to go with the mom, right? So your siblings did get torn apart. My two brothers stayed with my dad in Montana. And it was decided one of the older sisters needed to go with us to Houston because we were little. I had to have been five, maybe going on six. And so he would have been one and a half or two. He was tiny. So he and I and my eldest sister, Jennifer, all went with my mom to Houston, Texas. And my mom at the time, she's like, I, I want to study at the Carl Jung University or, or Institute or whatever. I don't even know what it's called. But she was all getting really philosophical about her life and so she just felt the need to go do this and this is where this institute was even as a a small child I'm like this is stupid how could you pick something so far from where our home has been this Texas thing took three days in a car it was terrible it was a nightmare but as a little kid you can imagine you're like are we there yet anyway we get down there And my eldest sister is 10 years older than me. So she would have been like 15, maybe 16 years old. And she had already gotten into drugs. And so here we are thrust into the midst of this inner city situation. One of my deepest memories of the place is the smell of diesel fuel from the buses. Because we would go downtown and we would have to ride buses to get everywhere we went. And it was short-lived because right after we got there, we were realizing that my eldest sister had issues and that if my mom was going to have to work a job, which she had never done in her married life of 18 years, never ever had to work a job. She just had children and stayed home, which is typical of that era, right? Women didn't go outside the home to work. So she had nothing to fall back on. So not long after that, she got in touch with my dad and said, listen, you know, this eldest sister is not doing anything to help. She's actually stressing me out. I have a, a memory of being in that apartment by myself. So I don't know where my little brother was. I don't know where my mom was. And I don't know where my big sister was. 
but I think I had chicken pox or measles, one of those two, because I remember I had bumps on my skin, and I don't know if they're trying to like quarantine me and leave me there by myself, but I was very small. It was entirely too small to be left alone in a big city, right? So then my middle sister came. She's seven years older than me. So she herself was still a child, comes down to this big city, and she's way more responsible. At least she's making sure that we have food. And I remember opening the fridge that time I'm there by myself, and there's literally nothing in the refrigerator for me to eat. And I'm hungry. And we weren't living in poverty per se. You know, my mom was, but she was a cocktail waitress because it was the only thing she could make a bunch of money and tips and do. So we went kind of from this upper middle class, verging on being a little hoity-toity because of my dad's position with the governor's office to this weird alternate universe for me. I mean, it's not safe to just go out and run in the neighborhood and play all day like we did in Montana. And so... What happened next was my eldest brother, Michael, was hit by a truck riding his bicycle at twilight. So the guy didn't see him, and he'd also been drinking. And so we get this phone call that my brother is in the hospital intensive care. He's broken his back in three places. They don't know if he's going to survive. My dad's off in Lake Tahoe with a new girlfriend. And my mom and my eldest sister we just piled into a car and we drove and drove and drove for three days to get to drive to get to the your brother in the hospital yes not knowing if he's of course no cell phones no way to communicate you're talking about pay phones you know my mom having to put in like three dollars worth of quarters just to say hey is is he is he going to be okay do we know anything else and also just the antagonistic relationship of my two parents at that point Mm. and so you know we go and of course he's going to be okay but he's literally in traction if they've, they've done all this surgery to try to put pins and tons of pain meds so this start started my eldest brother's major addiction to pretty hardcore drugs he just had chronic pain and that's how as a child they basically taught him to deal with his pain so he, when he gets out, he's in this big body cast, literally like around a halo around his forehead and then all the way around his neck and clear down to his, his hip bones. The only thing free is like his arms and his legs. And because he needed special ramps and special attention, we just decided to relocate to Spokane where my mom's family was. And we assumed that, that we would have some kind of help. Even though it was a huge tragedy for our family, it brought us at least geographically closer so that we could see our siblings. So while this is going on, your dad's in Lake Tahoe and so your other three siblings, which is like early teenage years, are all together alone? Yeah, just exactly, exactly. And do you recall, because you were a kid, do you remember, was your mom resentful of having to move back and not finish her studies? Do you remember anything? I don't remember her ever saying that because she never did even start them. Oh, she got into just survival mode. And apparently during this time, from what I'm told, what my dad told me is, you know, I tried to tell your mom to come back. Let's make it work. We've got six children. And, and then hearing my mom's side saying I was sitting in a hotel room with a bottle of pills and just saying I was done. I can't do this. I can't have my children torn apart. You know, thinking back on that, as an adult with children, I can't imagine tearing my family apart. 
And my dad was also a little bit abusive. Like he, that was his knee jerk response to anybody except like his, his peers. Of course, he wouldn't haul off and smack them, but that was his, his thing with us children. And even with my mom, and I had this little blip of a memory, even my mom having a knife in her hand one time when they were arguing, like, stay away from me, or, you know, mm-hmm. I swear I'm gonna, I'll use this knife. And I was sitting up in this banister with my head, you know, like through the, the little banisters looking at my parents in this strange thing. So anyway, when he's saying, you know, come back, we'll get counseling, we'll do, I'll do whatever you need me to do, well, by then, she was so deeply hurt because apparently he had been cheating on her. Not only she never even told him about seeing him with his sis- her sister. She never even wait, said wait, anything. Wait, wait. Yeah, never she, even confronted she him. Didn't confront him about that. Never even confronted her sister. So her sister never even knew oh, that she saw this. Wow. But it just deeply wounded my so mom. So she sounded like maybe she, what do they call a stuffer? Like she just <laughs> yeah would would stuff it down. And certain her really bad. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking back, I can see my mom after having this nervous breakdown as soon as I was born. And her her brother was actually a doctor and had come to visit because he knew that she was overworked and just oh, the whole thing and knew mm-hmm. that the marriage wasn't doing well. My mom apparently was catatonic. She was just finished. And he's, he just made a phone call to the hospital to like a mental ward and said, I need to mm-hmm. admit this person. And she just needs to rest for a couple of weeks. And I don't even know how long. I think it was closer to a month that my mom was actually completely out of commission in kind of hospital. Even just the emotional highs and lows of like being pregnant and having little babies and your hormones like added mm-hmm. onto everything mm-hmm. and six of them, like I can't imagine. And I think it was his social standing that started kind of started to turn his, his head a little bit. Like right. he knew better than to be doing those things, but he'd, go out with, uh, there was a place called the Montana Club, and I know that that's where he and his, his buddies would go out and get way too intoxicated and hook up with women and whatever else. She never confronted him. Yeah, there's no consequence wow. for him at that point. It was all very, our, our whole thing was just one terrible misstep after another of my parents. And I I look back and I have mercy on them because I know how hard it is to be a parent. But by the same token, in my head, I'm like, who does that to six children? All we had was each other at the time. We didn't have our parents paying attention to us. We were all basically just in it together. And, you know, we had a lot of fun together. So we would camp out in the yard half the summer. My dad would put up his big old army tent. So when they tore us apart like that, everything that I cherished as a small child was destroyed. I can't honestly look back on my childhood and say my parents loved me and cared for me and nurtured me. I don't remember. It was my siblings that did that. So when, when that was torn in half, that's what was affected is, is truly my identity and my value was just what little I had was for me, it was just literally like someone pulled the rug out from under all of that. Once my brother's going to be okay, he's in his cast, he needs to be in a place where they've got ramps so he doesn't have to do a lot of stairs. And so we found the right school for him and they let him do some of it at home for, you know, six, eight months so that he could get that cast off and all this. 
we were pretty much all together at that point, if I'm remembering correctly, okay. in Washington State. So my dad now, once my brother was good, he went back to Montana for whatever reason. Okay. I honestly can't re recollect why. But sure. I remember being there with my little brother, who turned into a pyromaniac. <laughs> Every time we turned around, something was on fire. It was, And so he clearly as a tiny child was feeling the same things I was feeling and had no ability to deal with it either, you know? And so this is, this is his thing. So I remember from one minute to the next, you know, I remember one time telling him this, I can hear sirens. And so me and my older sister started torturing him and we were like, they're coming for you, bro. They're coming for you. And he started to scream and cry. And I remember my mother yelling at us from downstairs, you guys, knock it off. Like, don't do that to your brother. What, what are you thinking? And I'm not even joking. Five minutes later, we got a knock at the door. There's a fire truck in front of the house and a couple of police cars. So truly, they were coming for him. Oh, he had started goodness. someone's coach house on fire. So the, our houses were so old back in the day that they still had standing what they called coach houses. They were dilapidated and people would just store a bunch of junk in them. Well, that's what this was. It was literal tinderbox. So he's out there with his friend behind it about two blocks down from us playing with matches. And I guess as soon as it got out of control and he couldn't hose it down anymore, he ran home and just hoped it for the best and so we're hearing sirens and yeah so this is the kind of childhood I, I had it was pretty insane and of course constant just hatred and animosity between my parents and by this time my mom was shacking up with a guy that was I think 10 years her junior 12 maybe maybe even more I don't know but he creeped me out I just I didn't feel good about him I I, I, he, he never did anything to me physically or sexually, but I just, I didn't get a good vibe from him. This one thing my mom said to me during that time is, listen, because I had a friend whose stepdad was molesting her. And I said, mom, this is going on with my friend and I can't keep it to myself. I feel like we have to say something, do something. And that was back when people didn't talk about stuff like that, right? My mom, I just like for once in my whole life, she was my hero. I never remember her doing much morally high ground kind of stuff. It was always how can we cheat this and how can we just to get through life. And But she put me in the car and we drove to the school and she said, she said, I need to see the principal. And we went in and we talked to him and she said, you tell him exactly what you told me. And of course, I was just, a, I was, I think maybe in fifth grade and I was just mortified, but I'll never forget telling him and then he called her in the office my friend and I remember her looking at me like what have you done and so in the car ride home my mom said to me I will always believe you if anyone ever tries anything with you including by now they're married the second husband of mine I will believe you wow yeah so that helped me because I didn't get a good vibe off of him I I always kept him at an arm's length. I, he freaked me out. I, I never really had a good feeling about him. So we move out to the country. We live on five acres. My elder sister got a horse and then she went off to college. So it kind of became my horse. We had chickens and that was kind of to me, it was like our life might actually be okay. We're living on a farm. We would take like a maybe a 400 foot walk down to a creek where there was like a swimming hole where the water would slow down and kind of, so it was just as idyllic as, as you could expect from 
a childhood. So by now I'm about 11 or 12 and it's, it's old school, man. We walk down this big long driveway, get on a school bus. It takes us 45 minutes to get to school. So I mean, it was very rural and we, we could see Mount Spokane, the snowy mountain, kind of like how you can see the, the peaks and Flagstaff. That's how we, we, that's where we lived. It was just absolutely beautiful. But then all I ever saw was people drinking and using drugs all around me. And just surrounded by all these weirdos that my stepdad would bring in. And by then we had sort of, I don't know if we adopted her, but she was a friend of my sister's who was a foster child. And she was an older teenager. And so she ended up in, the, in, in like one of those group homes because she had gotten into trouble. And so they couldn't trust her in the foster system. Anyway, she's bringing in men. And so it was just this constant flux of just people, weird character type people. And I was kind of on the verge of of womanhood, you know, so I don't know. I just, I I had people come in my bedroom. I remember that people would be partying and my older brother's friends coming in my room. And I'm like, it was just such a recipe for such disaster. And one time I remember my brother that's closest in age, his name's Matthew, he had these pot plants. So it's so fertile up there. It's not like down here where you can't get anything to grow. He would just take these pot seeds and just fling them over the back. We lived up on this, uh, like an escarpment almost that dropped down to where that river was. And so he just threw out a bunch of pot seeds and they just turned into this crop of marijuana. And I'm like this young kid that isn't yet into drug use, even though my whole family is. It's still me and my little brother, not quite yet to that place where we're doing everything that everybody else is doing. But we're watching. We're seeing it all. We're breathing in pot smoke. You know, I'm sure we're getting high just from the contact, you know, with the smoke. So in my head, I'm like, the cops are going to kick the door in any day and just take all of us off to jail. And this is what I'm envisioning as like a 10, 11, maybe going on 12 year old child. But at the same time, I'm experimenting with smoke and weed because that's what everybody around me is doing. And I don't know. It was like, I remember thinking, I don't want to be anything like these people. Like, I swear to you, I did really good in school. Like the, I was the kid in fifth grade that they would, that the teacher would leave me reading a book to the class because I was such a, I was so far advanced from the rest of the class. And trust me to pay attention to who was misbehaving and all this. So here I am. And so I was, you knew it was a lifestyle you didn't want. I did. As a kid. I did, but ironically, here I was just getting sucked right into it. Because, I mean, we know now that literally your brain isn't fully developed till you're like 21, 22 to make those decisions and understand repercussions and, and long-term effects of those things. So I'm just thinking when everybody would have partied the night before, we'd go around and we'd drink the rest of whatever was in the cups, you know, and clean the ashtrays out and there'd be there'd be little bits of of joints laying around and so me and my little brother just started doing what everybody else was doing in it I can't even think how little he was I remember my sister's friends blowing weed smoke in his face when he was like two I feel like I remember that from when we lived still lived in Montana so there's also this time I remember when we were living in Washington still before that my brothers had gotten completely wasted they were hammered and they started screaming at each other and my younger brother, very hot-headed. My elder brother, actually the one who broke his neck, 
his back was quite docile. He wasn't a fighter, but he just was mouthy. And so my younger brother was the fighter. He was, we called him the screamer because when he was little, that's all he did to scream at everybody. And he went and got a gun, a shotgun. And I remember thinking, and here again, I'm just a child. I'm just maybe 10, 11 years old. And again, my little brother, maybe seven or eight years old. And we're witnessing all this constant insanity as children. And I'm thinking someone's going to shoot the other one. And it just, it escalated and escalated. And we're all crying, of course. We're like, please don't, 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 don't. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the memories I had of just, we're all just going to go to jail. We're all going to die. Like I said, I don't ever remember a nurturing moment with either of my parents. Even with my elder siblings, as I got older, I was just they didn't feel the need to nurture me because I wasn't a baby anymore. You know, my older siblings, plus it wasn't their job. I remember I bashed my face on a foosball table. You can see my, I have a deviated septum. Never even knew that I had completely broken my nose, just went on about my life. I couldn't have been more than 12 years old. And at some point between 12 and like 14, my mother is so tired of trying to be the quote breadwinner even though my dad was actually supporting us he was now remarried and still living in Montana had his own practice by now and we rarely see my dad we just don't have a relationship with either of my parents and so for some reason my mom just decides one day the best thing for her to do is to send the three smallest children on a bus unexpectedly in the middle of the winter to Montana Now, you know how seedy bus stations are, and there's this huge storm coming. Again, no cell phones, no instant information that we have now. So it just sticks all of us on a bus. I'm thinking my brother Matthew might have been maybe 13 or 14. I would have been maybe 12, and then my little brother would have been maybe 8 years old. Sticks us on a bus, doesn't call my dad and say, hey, listen, I'm sending these three children to you. Because I'm tired and you have no idea. You didn't tell your dad you were coming? No. It was a plan. We were supposed to go and drive my stepmom and my dad so crazy that they just sent us right back and said, we will pay any child support you want. Just take care of these kids. So it was like a a thing of manipulation. And this was my mom in a stinking nutshell. This was my mom of just pure manipulation. And did, did she actually tell you guys to misbehave? Oh, yeah. Well, it wasn't so much me and my older brother. It was my little brother. It was like, Uh, you can do this. You know, this is your mission in life. Well, here I am again on the... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, just on the verge of being a young woman. And I mean, you need your mom during that time. And here my mom's sending me this person I don't even know. And it was just, it was a disaster. And so my brother, Matthew, was had enough wherewithal and in this snowstorm was ridiculous like we're going through the snowstorm and you know you're going through a mountain pass and you're in this huge greyhound bus and it literally as a child you're thinking we're gonna die we're just literally gonna go over the edge because it's so snowing it's not like here it's like it snows five feet in an evening a lot of snow and this bless this bus driver's heart just powering on through you know kind of following the snow the only one in the bus no there were other people in there not very many Wow. We're stupid enough to get in a bus. But anyway, so we finally get there. Feels like days later because it just took forever. We're at this seedy, disgusting bus station. And my brother thankfully thinks to, once we can't reach my dad at home, 
He's like, well, let's call the Montana Club, right? This is where my dad's out partying all the time. And sure enough, that's where my dad is. We find him at the club, you know? And so he's getting a phone call for the first time saying your kids are all at the bus station. Yeah. We, yeah, my little, my brother's calling saying we, mom sent us, and, he, and my dad wow. literally, I can hear him cursing through the telephone. He is screaming. He's like, you have to be kidding me. And gets in his car, and I'm sure he's completely hammered, drives over to the bus station to get us, and we get in the car, and he is just livid, as you can imagine. I'm sure mm-hmm. putting myself in his shoes, I would have been the same way. And he just said, you will never see your mother again, just so you know. I don't care what happens. I'm going to court tomorrow morning, and you will never see your mother again. And so we were like, oh, that backfired real quick. So they work all week, and, and I think I mentioned he has his own practice by now. So they work and work. She's his secretary. So they do all the work all week. And then so by the time Friday evening rolls around, they're like, literally out going to be out all night and so consequently me and my brothers are left completely to our own devices and so literally running the streets so you're talking about a 12 year old and my little brother maybe being eight years old and my older brother's just by now I'm not even kidding stealing cars that that's how bad things had gotten so just it was just a disaster. And so it was just nothing but bad stuff. But I do have these little blips of memory where, like I went to church with a friend and watching their family dynamic and just thinking it was so far removed from what I had experienced that I just could not relate. And I always believed that I just don't fit in with that stuff, like that whole church and God thing. There's just no way. I just... But I do remember as I'm out running the streets and now I'm dabbling in drinking and smoking pot because that's all we know how to do. That's all anybody in our family's ever done. And I remember going into a Catholic church. That's back when they left churches open 24-7 so you could light a candle. And I do remember going in there and just looking at the, they had the stations of the cross on the, and they were of course backlit. So you, at night it was absolutely stunning to look at. And it was awe-inspiring, right? Even though I had, even though we were, <clears throat> excuse me, Catholic, I, I was never religious. I never even knew that Easter was because Jesus rose again. I should know that as so a Catholic. that's what I was going to ask you yeah. about. What level of Catholic was your family growing up? I think my dad's mom was very insistent that you have to marry a Catholic girl. And my mom's mom was a Methodist and probably the best Christian I've ever known, honestly. My grandma was, my dad's mom was someone I did not like. I didn't want to be around. She was very judgmental. She was very hateful towards my mom. She was never kind to us as children. Very strange. And I I think that gave me some insight as to how my dad was treated as a child. So Mm -hmm. I kind of understood his anger all the time and how he kind of passed that whole rage thing to us children. We all had terrible tempers, terrible. But my mom's mom was like an angel. She was just the sweetest thing. Every time we came to visit, we'd get these warm hugs, and she'd feed us good food. And it was just very, very seldom that we saw her. So my grandmother, I never got to go stay with her and spend time with her because she was just old by the time I was, Mm. you know, old enough to stay with someone. 
yes, we end up in Montana and we're running the streets. And I had this, this epiphany kind of, of just, there has to be more. And like, God, are you really out there? And I remember I'm only 12 years old, maybe um, not in my right mind. You know, I'm, I'm by now doing drugs and, and whatever I can get my hands on and just running the streets. And, and then there's another time I remember during that time that I told my dad I was going to the movie with some friends and there was this guy that had this crush on me. And so we're all going to go out behind the theater and smoke weed and do whatever else. And I'm still enough of a child that I know this young man doesn't have a good idea of what he's going to wants to do with me. Right. And I honestly think that it was my grandmother's prayers looking back now of her just saying, God, I can't contribute much to this because of my health or my whatever. But I know that she prayed because when she passed, we found our names written in her Bible. So I know that she was praying for me because I go down into this situation and I'm standing in front of the theater and I'm watching, I'm almost having an out-of-body experience. I'm watching all these people go around the back and I'm sort of the last in line and I'm following them. And something in me says, don't go don't do this. Nothing good is going to come from this. And I wasn't a, a, like I said, I wasn't a church going child. I wasn't, I had never had an encounter with what I consider to be anything real. But I remember I just literally turned the other direction and I ran 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 until I got home. And I remember letting myself in the house and I'm there alone. It's cold. There's no one home. My dad's out with his wife. I don't know where my brothers are. I don't know. But I just remember feeling this is as safe as I'm going to be tonight. And I don't want to be out in the streets. I do remember a couple times after that just realizing that there was something protecting me. There was something watching over me. I went out to the boonies with some friends. And again, I, I can't be more than 13 years old, 12 or 13. And everybody's drinking everybody's partying and then they start hooking up and kind of disappearing and I'm this young girl sitting there by the fire and I'm kind of like stoking the fire and there's a young man sitting next to me and again thank God he was a decent human being that he wasn't someone that would do something to me that I had no control over and then in the morning the sun comes up whoever has the car is driving us and and I had told my dad I was staying with a friend she had told her parents she was staying with me one of those things and I just remember no one would ever find me. If somebody killed me or hurt me, no one would ever find me out here. It's Montana. I'm in, out in the middle of nowhere. And so another time I took some prescription medication from my stepmother and drinking. I don't even remember what they're for, but they were like some kind of a sedative oh to where, gosh. yeah, to where I fell back on a pallet and I was just thinking, I could almost feel like the life leaving my body. My heartbeat was slow, slow. And I could just, it was almost like, am I dying? And then something in me said, you need to get up and move around. Hmm. And so I did. I got up and I moved around. I got some fresh air. I stopped doing all the stuff that I was doing. And I just told somebody, hey, I just, I have to go home. Like it's getting late. I have to go home. And I knew I didn't have to go home. No one was, well, no one was there worrying about me or wondering where I was. And so... But those three times were very defining for me. For sure. Yeah. Okay, make a big castle, but you can't come in here, baby, because we're recording. And Mom, I can't out of 
what is crazy to me about this that I think is a miracle in itself is that obviously you were lacking in like the male attention you know your dad wasn't there I'm sure your brothers after a point they were there but they're getting in their own mess and that in that stage that I feel like we all remember that like 12 or 13 and you're just you're obviously desperate for like male attention for sure and it didn't just totally take you over like I'm just thinking of these things like Mm -hmm. these times that God totally protected you and it would have been so almost natural to be like oh this guy wants to take me behind the movie theater why not he's paying attention to me Mm. and that it didn't happen yeah. Like that is really, that's really cool. I, like I was that. always the one with the conscience and I don't know why. And I yeah. know it's God given. I know it's something that literally puts, he puts in you. It, it, but I, and I was always like, we shouldn't do this. Like with my brothers, mm-hmm. my elder brothers, when they were getting into their nonsense, I'd be like, we shouldn't do this. So somehow I just, at really important moments, I chose to listen to that conscience. And so that's what I would say to any young teenagers just listen to that god-given thing Mm -hmm. there's bells going off in your head whistles like don't go there don't do this don't do that and to just listen and trust that little voice because i do feel like it's something that the creator literally puts inside of us Mm -hmm. and the more you ignore it the less you hear it you know i i completely lost all hope when i was 15 16 i just was like what's the point in being a virgin no one else it seems to be and again exactly what you just said and I'm not getting any affection from anyone and I haven't had probably since I was an infant from my mother and so my mom sends us off and we're left to our own devices and then my dad decides he wants to buy a hotel on the Oregon coast so he uproots all of us and takes us to the coast. And honestly, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful place, completely different from Montana, but tiny little town. I think if I remember driving into the town, there was 1,500 people in that town when we first went there. It's really small. So, I mean, it, and it was at a good time in my life. I was like in seventh grade and I started to make friends. But of course, for whatever reason, they gravitate, these little party animals gravitate towards the new people. They're like, oh, hey. And the, and the snotty kids, they're not nice. They're like, oh, I'm too good for you kind of thing. So unfortunately, I got into the same kind of stuff that I was doing before. But I wasn't running the streets at night because my, my dad and my stepmother's jobs were where we lived. We lived in these this apartment area of a hotel that they owned and they ran. And me work. And so I started making my own money and buying all my own stuff. So that was kind of a cool time of my life. And I tried to stay out of trouble, but I definitely gravitated towards people that were partying and doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. And then I had an opportunity to, to be a cheerleader, to try out to be a cheerleader. And I started getting into sports. And I really believed in my heart if I could just do these things where you had to sign contracts that you weren't smoking and drinking and partying because that was against the code of conduct. And so I literally signed contracts with the basketball coaches and with the cheerleading coaches that I wasn't doing those things. I look back and I realized during that time, I really wanted my dad's attention because I was like, my, my brother Matthew had moved out and he, so it was just me and my little brother. And so I, I realized now, you know, my grades and all the athletics and the things that I was doing, I really just wanted 
his approval. That's the you were hoping to get your dad's attention. Did it work at all? Did he go to your athletics? No, like- that's what I was just going to say is not one game did my father ever come to. He came one time, I remember, and he was quite drunk and I, like stuck out like a sore thumb. And I'm sure it was really uncomfortable for him. So he was just like, so he just got up and left. It was so strange. I And I, I was kind of relieved because he was kind of going to be embarrassing, mm-hmm. I thought. And so he wasn't sloppy drunk, but I could tell that he had definitely been juicing it up pretty good. So I was like, yeah, no, you go on. And yeah, so I just, and then my brother got arrested for, and I was instrumental in that. I didn't mean to be, but he was selling weed at that time and he was working construction. So he was really making a ton of money. And so he, his, some of his friends were some of my friends and blah, blah, blah. So someone called me, I had my private line that I paid for in my bedroom, you know, (laughs) you know, some kids won't relate, but it's like actual cord connected to the wall. And it had a really (laughs) long stretchy cord that you could walk all over with. Do you remember those? So anyway, I had my own phone line. So it was a private line. Nobody could pick up and hear what I was saying. So a lot of times he would give people that phone number. And he'd be like, hey, if anybody calls, just take, take a message and let me know, you know. And so I didn't know it had to do with selling weed. I really didn't. I knew that he did a little bit of that. Anyway, he was actually buying pounds of weed and, and packaging it in ounces and selling, selling it, selling it. So, and obviously back when that was a felony, it was a big deal. And one, t- one night, I'm, for whatever reason, home alone. It was like a Friday night. And phone call this girl she's like oh hey this is so and so I was looking for Matt you know can you give him a message that um I I got some guys here that want to get some weed from him or or maybe she didn't even say that she just said they want to hook up with him and and so I it seemed important so as soon as he came in the door I said oh hey so and so called and he's like well I don't I'm not sure I even know who that is I said well you know give her a call back or or whatever but anyway so he did and goes down to this hotel and there's two undercover cops and he's busted and he's going to jail for a long time mm. back then. It was very, very huge, big deal. And my dad, of course, bails him out, gets him these high powered lawyers saying, this is entrapment. You can't do this. And of course, I always felt super guilty for that because had I just minded my own business and not said anything to him, he wouldn't have gone there and he wouldn't have gotten in trouble I just remembered screaming at my dad one time I'm like do I have to like break the law and go to jail just to get your attention here I am like a straight A student I got a call from a teacher that says there isn't a grade high enough for her she Mm -hmm. is so brilliant and I just wanted you to know that Uh, he said that's how it should be that was his response to me and that's when I just lost it I was like do I have to just be like, I was like, look, you, you take my brother out to lunch, out to dinner so you can discuss whatever legal issues he has. He's gotten himself into this, this, and you're bailing him out of it. And here I am working my job, buying all my own clothes. I'm paying for the gas in the car. I'm paying for the oil changes, whatever. I'm being very responsible Yeah, for somebody who's yeah, 16, 15, 16 years old. And I can't even get a kudos from the guy like, and so I was just, at that point, I really hated both of my parents. And I just, something in me just snapped. And I said, you know, I don't even have one memory of you ever saying that you love me. 
do you know that? You're my dad. And he just, it was like I kicked him in the face when I said that. He was just like, oh. And again, I reference now as an adult, he had, his mom was a terrible person. And she was an unhappy person. So she was very unkind to my dad, I'm sure. So he had no reference points of how to even be a parent, I'm sure. And so I just remember just being done. I'm like, I'm done. You know, you do what you got to do. I'll do what I got to do. And so I, I really went on this pretty self-destructive. I took any kind of drug somebody would give me. And that's back when cocaine was making a, a real splash on the scene. And I was, I remember eating mushrooms a couple times and I was so high. I just remember thinking, oh God, if you'll stop this, I'll never do it again kind of thing. And so during this time, so my brother has moved out. He's finally gotten out of his predicament, his legal predicament. So he decides to move to Washington where my mom is kind of close to where we had had the farm out there. It was not the same place. Anyway, he comes back to visit and he's like, Hey, you want to jump in the car and go visit mom with me? And I was like, sure, why not? You know, I've got all my own money. I've got a savings account. How long had it been since you had seen her? Do you know my mom never got in a car to come see us when we were in Montana? Never. My sister did. My second to the youngest, second to the eldest sister, Suzanne, she came and visited us all the time. Like we were her children. Never one time. I think I went with my dad when I was probably about 11. And this is, I'm probably 16 going on 17. My mom doesn't even call me on the telephone. And that's back, of course, when long distance was expensive, but still never called me on the telephone knowing I'm becoming a young woman. And I, I even wrote her a letter once or twice saying, mom, seriously, I need a mom. I have nobody to talk to right now in my life. No response. You need to, I got one response. You need to just be tough, tough this out. So anyway, I really was becoming super hateful towards both my parents. I had zero respect for either of them. And yeah, so I, so I asked my dad, I was like, listen, you don't have to pay anything. I'll get all my assignments from my teachers. In fact, I'll get it done early. I'll make sure I have no prior commitments with my work, with my jobs, add a couple of jobs. And he's like, I don't know. I'll think about it. And of course, that always meant when we were kids, that meant no. That meant just, I don't want to say no right now. I'll say it later. So I, I planned. I was I packing my suitcase, getting my money out of the bank. I was doing all this stuff. And my brother's like, uh, we're leaving tomorrow morning. You want to go? And I said, well, you know. And so my dad sees me packing. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm packing. I'm going to go see my mom. Well, I haven't even given you permission. And I was like, Dad, come on. I'm going to come back. It's not like, and it's not like any skin off your nose, you know. And he said, no, I don't want you to go. I don't want you to go. Unpack that bag. And I was just, so by now I'm mad and I'm rebellious and I really hate him. And so I just told my brother, I'm going. I'm going to go. So I'll sneak out at five in the morning with my stuff. And if I have to lay down in the car, that's what I'll do. So I did, I snuck out and went, and it's quite a drive from the Oregon coast up to Northern Washington. So what stands out to me about that is from the time you were really young, before you guys moved to Oregon, you had been doing all kinds of things and your dad had no idea. Yeah. Because he was out partying. Yes, exactly. And then you're wanting to see your mom and he decides to hold the hard, fast line of, no, you can't do that. He's going to give you a boundary now. 
exactly that he never gave you with all the other dysfunctional harming things that you had been doing well you know and i'm sure he had this idea that there were boundaries but we were breaking every one of them mm-hmm. without it's him like knowing. yeah you could go out to, with your friends but you got to be home by the time I it turns see. dark or whatever his okay. rule was so Did, you think he was oblivious to the drug use to all oh that absolutely stuff? Absolutely, he was. And he was, was that just because he was so busy that he wasn't paying attention? Well, neither of my parents parented us. That's yeah. the bottom line. Okay. They never were parents. This is always a big question mark in my head. There's the parents who wink at it, like they kind of know something's going on, but they just, ah, they're being teenagers. And then there's ones where I'm like, just really don't know that your kid's getting high? You really don't know that? Yeah. I don't think he knew the depth. I think there's a possibility that he knew. Partying or something. This is my relationship with my parents. So as time goes on, I realize I've just created all these real hard walls in my heart, Mm. in my life. Nobody loves me. My dad's saying to me from the time I can remember being able to comprehend language was, you better watch out for yourself because no one on this planet's going to do it. Basically, nobody cares about you, so you better watch out for yourself. You better take care of yourself. And so as a child, as a tiny child, thinking nobody cares about me, nobody loves me, if I were gone from this earth tomorrow, would anybody even care? So here I am, a teenager with that real fatalistic, hard, hardened heart, thinking, you know, basically flipping my dad the middle finger like, you think I care about your opinion? Mm-hmm. I basically could support myself. Well, you know, so up yours. I'm, I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. And so I don't even know how long it took him to realize I wasn't there because I would get up in the morning and go to school and be gone for basketball and go out of town games, whatnot. And so going from that to your mother who hasn't reached out to you. Exactly. For, wow. Just wanting to see her. Mm-hmm. I go and she lives in this uh, little apartment, uh, like a like a condo that has you know three or four bedrooms and several bathrooms and it's an older place but did she know you were coming I don't remember I do not remember that but I got there and I did sort of expect a little bit of a warm welcome and it wasn't there and so my brother had met this girl who was pregnant with a child that was not his but they fell in love and so she was living there and upstairs with my brother, Matthew, and uh, he was working real hard and he was going to support this baby that wasn't his. And so she was my same age, his, his girlfriend. So we hit it off. She was like a month apart in age. We hit it off and she had actually had the baby. So my brother's like, let's do some acid. And I had never actually done that. I had done mushrooms, which are similar to that, but I had never actually done it. So that was one of those times that I was so high that I was like begging God to bring me down. I was like, please, I I will never do this again. If you just bring me down. And it lasted, I swear for 24 hours, it was literally like hell on earth. And I never did do acid again after that. I really didn't. But I remember I thought I'm going to have to call my dad. Like I haven't been there in days and he's going to be angry with me and upset with me. And doubting he would have called the police like I don't know where my kid is so I decide to get the nerve up and I call my dad I'm like hey dad sorry I left I'm you know I'm planning on taking the bus back down and in like two days and he's like you know what why don't you just not come back 
If you're going to just completely disregard my wishes like that, then maybe you, you just need to make your own arrangements. I'm 16 years old and I'm with my mom whom I have no relationship. Right. And so I'm upset and I'm crying and I'm like, dad, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. I had no intention of, of hurting you or disregarding you, but I just really wanted to see my mom. And he's like, you know, your mom put you on a bus as a little child. Why you want to see somebody that's going to do something like that to you? And I was like, that's an excellent. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think that through all the way. Anyway, my mom sees me upset and crying. I hang up the phone and she's like, what's going on? And I said, well, dad says maybe I shouldn't even come back. And her knee jerk instantaneous response is, was, well, you can't stay here. And I was just like, good to know. Oh and I swear to you, I got my bus ticket as quickly as I possibly could. And in my mind and my heart, I was just, I was done with her. I was like, I will never see her again. I will never speak to her again. And any chance I get, I'm going to hurt her as badly as she's hurt me. But again, I had built up such a toughness in my spirit and in my heart that I was just like, fine. And that whole thing of my, what my dad always said, nobody cares what happens to you. You got to care what happens to you. And so I just, I, I, I didn't know what I was going into, but I got on a bus and went down there. I had a friend come pick me up from the bus station with my little suitcase and went back home. And my dad was there and he just kind of ignored the fact that I walked through the door and I went into my room and I just, it was literally, I think of it like an armadillo, just like layers and layers of just hurt. And I just swore I'm never, ever going to, as soon as I can get out of here and and support myself, I am just gone. I'm never looking back. And so I was 17. I remember and my second to the eldest sister came to visit. She said, I was telling her what was going on. She's like, why don't you just come up with me? And this is in Idaho. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'm 17 years old. I'm able to work a job. So I'm like, I can help support you. She's got a young child and I'm in my senior year of high school. So I go up there and I become a cheerleader up there. And so I'm kind of in the in crowd right away, still partying, still doing things I shouldn't be doing, but making it through my senior year. And I got a boyfriend and he gave me a promise ring. And so we we're going to get married as soon as I graduated high school. And probably about November, or December of that year. So I'm 17, just about ready to turn 18. I found out, I find out that he's cheating on me, this, this boy, cause he's now off in college and I'm still in high school. So I've got this stupid little diamond ring. And again, just one more blow to like, you're not worthy, you're not lovable. I, the concept of anyone, including God of the universe loving me was like, that's, there's no way that's true. There's just no way because that's the filter I'd created my entire life as a child. Wow. Yeah. So I get to this point in my life and I'm like, this person that says he wants to marry me is actually messing around and people keep telling me this right like he's doing this he's doing this and him saying they just don't want us to be together you don't understand they don't understand this he probably so desperately wanted to believe him I did and I did I did and I did believe him for months and so I 
did a surprise visit to his dorm room and everybody in his dorm knew me because I'd go down there and party with he and his friends and then I would go back up to northern Idaho and so I went down in the middle of the day one day and I don't even remember how I got there but somebody let me in his dorm room I don't even remember how it happened but I was sitting there waiting for him waiting for him and I just kind of started opening his doors drawers on his desk and I saw a letter that he had written to a friend but not mailed and it was like saying that he loved me and that he thought he wanted to spend his life with me, but you know, that he was, that he had cheated on me more than once. And so here it is in his own handwriting, all the things he has denied this whole time. So he comes walking in the door and I just crumpled it up and just like threw it in his face. And I was like, you are just such a piece of garbage. And him trying to defend himself, well, you shouldn't be going through my stuff. And I was like, what? Like, are you kidding me? So I took him back, even after all that. So by now, it's like Christmas time, and he's come back for a break from college, and he's up skiing with his friends. And I go up skiing on December 31st. It's going to be New Year's. Everybody's going to stay up there and party. And it was when you could still drink when you're 19 years old, right? So I, I, everybody's like, are you going to stay up here? Are you going to? And so we had, I had decided to, and my boyfriend's up there, and he's like, I'm not staying up here. There's a bunch of losers. I'm going down to town. And I was like, at this point in my mind, I'm like, you know what? You do you. Go do, go do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to stay up here. And so I cheated on him that night. And the next day, it was literally like some power that he had had over me was broken, completely mm-hmm. broken. And again, I look back to my praying grandmother. This is right around the time she was fixing to go into eternity. And I know that my grandma was praying for me because that guy had such a hold on me. And now I also know that my sister and her church were praying for me. Wow. Yeah. Literally on like the, the prayer board at morning prayer when they used to put all this stuff. But anyway, I just, it, something was broken and I was like, I'm, I'm done with this guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not wasting any more of my life or my time. He had c- talked me into quitting school. So now I didn't even have a high school diploma. So I was turning 18 and my sister... And you were a really top student. I was smart. And he just had convinced me I was worth nothing. And it just just basically cemented everything I already believed about Mm -hmm. myself, right? So I'm like, okay. So I did... And I see teenagers now and I see the, the, the stuff they get involved in and I see myself so much in that and just all the addictions and all the stuff. And so... I just, I was really set free. And I know it was now I looking back, just the power of God that I had an epiphany and the epiphany was, and it was literal. I literally saw a vision of myself, huge pregnant, trying to find him, calling around. Where is he? I don't know where he is. Well, yeah. And I was getting ready to smoke some pot and I put it down and I have this epiphany. So I wasn't high. Well, yeah, it was a real, it was, it, it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. But anyway, looking back, I know that it was, it was literally like God's spirit saying, it's time to turn. It's time to, mm-hmm. it's time, this isn't working for you. And I knew it wasn't working and I knew I didn't want to be like all my family. I knew that there was something deep inside me that said, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be this person getting high all the time. But I was also very broken and I also was self-medicating because I was so deeply wounded by the things that my parents had done to me. And even my siblings at that point had done some pretty harsh stuff. 
So I, my eldest sister, whom I never had gotten to know because she was so much older than me, she sends me this message saying, come down here, come down to New Mexico. And I was like, I don't want to go to New Mexico. That's like the desert, right? I'm from where there's lakes and rivers and greenery everywhere. And I was like, but I was desperate because I couldn't find a job. The economy was just tanking up in Northern Idaho and I wasn't finishing school. So it's literally like, then my other sister says, I'm going to Alaska. Basically, you can't come. I'm going to go work for the summer. I'm going to give my little boy to his dad for the summer. And I'm going to go make 10 grand for the summer doing, I don't remember what, working for forestry or something. And I wasn't invited. So this, my eldest sister's like, hey, come down here. So I did. And I, I just remember her saying, you have to go to church with us. And, you know, you're, you can't smoke in the house. And you can't, you know, no drugs, no alcohol. And this is the crazy sister. Yeah. This is the crazy one. So yeah. You're probably like, what? What do you mean? Well, she was a total nut job. I mean, she had changed her name. She had gotten in some religion where she actually changed her name. She said, call me Simone. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I remember thinking, she's such a whack job. And so I'm thinking she's just into some weird religion, right? Because all I had ever known was the Catholic church, and I had never felt any kind of power there to change my life. And so I just remember walking into church with her and I re- I'm not even joking you and I walk into this and I'm literally just covered with what felt like a blanket of warmth and looking at people smiling and singing and listening to the words of the song and going there's no way that this is real but then in my heart saying well how do you fake something like that but I'll tell you I can't even explain of, of all the hatred and venom I felt in my heart towards my entire family and towards everyone that had ever hurt me literally just melted away. And all I could think of was, I want this. I want this because I could feel love. And I swear to you, I'd never in my life, except maybe with that one grandmother, actually felt love. And I can't even explain it. Because, I mean, even the worst of parents, I feel like at some point show you love. But I, I couldn't remember it. I couldn't remember it. Maybe when I was a baby, they did. But anyway, just feeling love. And I just thought, oh, wow, God, if you can fix this broken thing, like a little kid with something that's so precious, like, can you fix this for me? And, and feeling Father God say, I absolutely can fix it. Just give it to me. And I I remember my sister coming up to me and saying, do you want to pray? And it's literally like I couldn't get to the altar fast enough. And it was literally only like four feet away. And it was in the Gallup Church where, you know, you guys ended up with your dad after, was it after Africa? But I just remember kneeling and just weeping. I, I couldn't remember having cried ever in my whole life ever having cried it was like be tough don't give into this you got to work through this you got it and it was literally like at that moment my father god was like it's all mine just give it to me and i did and man i'll tell you like a flood i've never felt so free and i remember people saying oh man, when you walk outside, the sky is bluer. And it was like that. And Gallup, New Mexico is literally like the armpit of the earth. If you've been raised where I was raised, right? 
I'm like, was there a fire here? Like, why is there literally nothing growing? And and from then on, I just remember the little Sunday school song. I, right away, I was like a Sunday school teacher. I don't know how that happened. I literally hated children because of my childhood. I'm like, I will never have children. I just, I can't. And being stuck in that situation and it was always just the little songs of read your bible pray every day and you grow 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 and that was just my whole thing i'm like i'm just i have to just soak this in well of course then i have to forgive my parents and i had sworn to anything in the universe that would hear me i will never go see my mother again i will never forgive her for what she's done to me my dad he tried he was, he was terrible at it, but he really did. You know, I remember him putting breakfast out when he was a single dad and putting vitamins and orange juice there and, you know, trying to dad, but he had never done it, you know? So it was just like, he was a complete, he was like a retarded, like a retarded, seriously, like his growth <laughs> was retarded as a child yeah, sure. of emotional, just like emotionally. Yeah, and same with my sure. mom, both of them. So then my mom is going to come down to New Mexico. She's given her life to Jesus Christ. As I did that morning, it was actually, I'm coming on 40 years. And it was right after Valentine's Day, right after my 18th birth that I made that decision. And honestly, looking back, it was just so real. And I don't know how anybody can argue like that changed life. And that's your 180. That's just like literally, I'm not going that way ever again. And just being, and feeling loved and feeling whole, not like this broken, broken. But then I was like, I have to forgive my mom because Jesus said. How soon after? Was it instantaneous? It was quite. That you knew you needed to forgive them? Yeah. It it was just like the preaching, Mm -hmm. everything coming over the pulpit. You can't hold on forgiveness and bitterness. And I'm like, oh, great. So you guys have no clue how I've been treated my whole life by these people. They are the worst people. And, and what you're telling me to do. Well, then, like I said, then my mom, actually, my mom got saved before I did. And she started, began writing me letters. And I was like, wow, she's got a lot of nerve talking to me about how good the Lord is. You know, then she left New Mexico to go deal with what was left of her marriage and gave me a plane ticket. That's how I ended up in New Mexico probably three months down the road, I hear my mom is coming back. And there's a part of me, that little girl, that wants a relationship with my mom, right? And nobody can deny that. But then there's this much, much bigger, deeper thing that says, I hate her. I hate her. And I swear to you, the more I could hurt her, anything I could do, anytime my siblings said, let's go see mom, we're going out to the lake this weekend. I was like, nope. Do you want me to take her anything from you? Nope. Do you want me to tell her anything from you? Nope. Just absolutely no. And you know, after time passed, my mom said, I knew that. I knew that you never would ever talk to me again. I knew that. And then, so for me, that was even harder because I'm like, and you never even tried to fix it. As the adult person, as the mother of this child that you've never really taken care of, never really nurtured, never occurred to you just to pick up the phone and say, I'm screwed up and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I have no excuse, but I am sorry. And she came down to New Mexico and it was just like this older woman in the church. I remember she just took me in her arms and she just held me so tight because she knew 
she knew what was going on with me and my mom. And she knew how hard that was for me to forgive. I was just literally like somebody ripping something from inside me, like a root of a, a big old tree, just pulling up everything I had built up inside me. And it was, it, it was just seemed so unfair to me. You know, there was part of me that said, that's so unfair. But I knew that the love of Jesus was real because he had healed me. And I knew I had to forgive her so that I could find complete and total healing. And I knew she was coming and I knew I was going to see her. So I was like, either I forgive her and deal with this head on. And I'd never done that with anything in my whole life. I had taken drugs and drank alcohol since I was a child just to numb all those feelings. So here I was sober and having to feel all the feelings. And, you know, as you learn in recovery, you're, emotional maturity basically stops when you start self-medicating. So I'm thinking I'm about a 12 year old child trying to process this and my mom and I'm having to, and so she comes and I did, I just, I just said, I forgive her, God, I'm going to just give this to you. And I think I know that my forgiveness and my genuine forgiveness towards my mom healed my mom, all those hurts my mom had from her childhood and from the things that my dad did to her and all the things that happened to her in life. And as a kid, you don't know any of that stuff. You're just like, why would your own mm -hmm. mom treat you this way? Mm -hmm. So God healed us together. Wow. She was saved. I was saved. We even were roommates and it was Whoa. cool. We had a blast. I learned how to cook from my mom. You know, it was just, and then I got married. I married my husband. I got, I got gift. Yeah. That's amazing. It was. And that's what she said. She said, I'll take this for as long as I can get it. And it was only two years. It was like, I met my husband right away in church. Since I just come from that situation of this dude that had completely burned me and I had broken free from that, my concept of men was not a good one. So I had to break through that. And, but it was all very, a quick thing that God did in me. Just, I think, cause I was you were ready. <laughs> I was. I didn't want to be the person I was. 1982, I got saved, gave my heart to Jesus. It's almost been 40 years. And then two years later, got married. And then two years after that, I, I had my first child. And we got sent out, started our first church in Durango, Colorado. And I mean, the rest has just been literally like the icing on the cake. And now it's documented.